John. I'm still on the old one. John 4. That's going to be interesting. John 4, verse 1 to 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came... That's it. Four. And then five, seven. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour to where where, where, where do I stop? 26, okay, thank you. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samarian woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samar Samar Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw, draw with, water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. He, Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you know now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will your worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. 
We worship what we know, for salvation is for the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshipper will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I will speak to you, am he. Thank you, Bob. This is the word of the Lord. reminder to the uh, home groups that uh, this week we still study uh, Azar 49, 1 to 26, and the sheets are over there by the library. Thank you, Bob. Thanks, chaps, and please uh, let's just join quickly in prayer. Father in heaven, I pray that as we Open your word together today that your word might spread rapidly, Father, and be honoured by all who hear it, Lord God. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think we have a, uh, we do have a PowerPoint. Things happened pretty fast after I heard that uh, Clint wasn't able to preach. So I've called this uh, Obstacles, Another One Bites the Dust. Back in the late 1990s, Wendy and I took our little car for a drive in the southern Conondale Range. We'd planned to drive across on these little forestry tracks to, to Jimna, which is on the far side of the range, if you know the little place. We didn't account for the state of the disused track. It was very disused. Nor the really, really steep terrain, nor the forecast of rain. I do recall saying... It will lay the dust, dear. Well, we'd got to where we, the starting point was. We'd travelled about 15 k's. We had bottomed out twice, gone into these really deep holes full of water and go bang and kind of bounce out again. And we were travelling through grey mist and really heavy rain and we're skidding up and down these long, greasy slopes. And steep cliffs, uh, steep cliffs on one side, bottomless ravines over on this side. And about halfway down one of these monstrous hills I had a light bulb moment Wendy we've got to stop and go back we must go back if we brought we told nobody not even our kids where we were going and there's nobody up there and so if we break down if we get bogged if we go over into a ravine we'll be there for days and never be or maybe never found so if, we had no mobile phone either so that didn't help so Wendy got out of the car and stood in the rain to guide me as I did a perfect 14-point turn around and face my car back up this slimy, greasy slope once again. And when you're back in the car, we skidded our way up and then down the next slope and up the next slope, skidding and carrying on, gunning the car. And finally, we hit this beautiful stretch of, of sandy road and we felt we were safe. But, but, we rounded the bend and in the 10 minutes since we'd driven past there, this huge tree had fallen down right across the road, side to side, no possible way around. We're stuck behind this thing. 
To the back of us is a deadly, slimy road. To the front there is this great, this great uh, tree preventing our escape. A massive, massive obstacle. We couldn't go forward. It was too dangerous to go back. Now, obviously we made it out. That's another story. Don't, don't even think about that, please. Uh, that's a different story together. That, that's where it gets really exciting. But I want you to focus on <clears throat> the obstacle that was in front of us because like that obstacle prevented us getting to safety, are there obstacles in our churches that prevent people or deter people from getting to Christ, which prevent them from hearing the gospel? from getting to the safety of of faith in the Lord Jesus. Because the the heart of God is that he loves people. He wants them to hear of the love and the forgiveness that he has for us in Christ. Clint sometimes speaks about Pastor Ray Ortland, who says that our church meetings should be places of gospel, where you hear about Jesus, of, of safety, where regardless of who we are, where we're from, what we've done, or what people know about us, we will be welcome there and, and be, be able to learn about Jesus without fear of rejection or criticism or condemnation. Places of safety. And also places of time where there's no pressure upon us, where the church leaders are, are trusting enough in God to let the Holy Spirit do the work of saving and changing people. So gospel, safety, time. Is it possible that, like that log obstacle, the church has sometimes put obstacles in people's way, preventing their access to the gospel, their access to safety and time? And those obstacles can include prejudices, our prejudices, or maybe otherwise unrealistic expectations upon people. Now, the account of the Samaritan woman is an amazingly large part of the gospel of John which suggests to me that there is something very important, very big going on here, bigger even than the conversion of a Samaritan woman, big though that is. But if we look very carefully at it, we'll see that there's a, a kind of an overlay atop of, over all this. It's um, Jesus is dismantling obstacles so the Samaritan woman can hear that gospel, that pure gospel and safety, and be given time to digest its message so that she might become a follower of Jesus. So I've um, chosen as my big idea our job as 21st century believers is to let people into the gospel, into God's heart desire for them, not keep them out. And that means identifying and removing obstacles. So we have, first of all, um, Jesus uh, on a mission. Now, our first point. Not sure if I'm having success up here getting it, but uh, is there a... Anyway, that's it. That's it. On a mission. Thank you. Great. Well, the context here is that Jesus and John the Baptist are both ministering in Judea. Jesus happens to be gaining more disciples than, than John. Now, John is not jealous about that. He's pleased because he says elsewhere, I must decrease that Jesus might increase. It is just what he wants. But there is, of course, potential for jealousy amongst his disciples. So to avoid conflict, Jesus and his disciples leave for Galilee, 
We have a picture, I think, that includes Galilee. There are, there are several roads that lead to Galilee from, from Judea. But uh, Jesus very purposefully jo- chooses, a, chooses a, a road that runs right through Samaria. That's that land in between Judea and, uh, and, and Galilee. He says in verse 4, or it says in verse 4, that it was necessary. Very strong word, it was necessary for him to go that way. It wasn't the only way, but Jesus is on a mission. Now, there is no love lost between Jews and Samaritans. They have been sworn enemies for the past 500 years. And perhaps almost at the risk of appearing provocative, Jesus stops at a place for a rest, at a place that the Jews might well claim as their own land the site of Jacob's well and the land that Jacob gave to Joseph. But Jesus is not interested in disputes about land. The disciples go into Sychar to buy food, it's about noon, and Jesus rests by the well. A Samaritan woman comes out to fetch water, woman on her own. Now, I imagine she'd be very unnerved to see a Jewish man sitting by the well. She'd know he was Jewish by his, uh, his clothing, Here's this man sitting by the well, and she'd be even more unnerved when he speaks to her and and speaks respectfully. He asks, will you give me a drink? He's in need. He's asking her to help him. Now, we know from the Gospels that though Jesus, as a man, human being, as well as God, the God-man, as a man, he needs food and drink. Yet his interests are never just food and drink. Verse 34 in the latter part of this account, he says to his disciples, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That is Jesus' primary calling. That that is his food. So as always, he wants to tell this woman the good news about the way to eternal life with God. Well, okay, point two, obstacles encountered and dismantled. We're looking at verses 9 through 15. Immediately Jesus strikes obstacles to his being able to share the good news of God's forgiveness and love with this woman. There's a cultural obstacle that could prevent Jesus speaking to her at all. He's a man, and a man does not usually speak to an unaccompanied woman. Obstacle number one. Then there's a historic obstacle. He's a Jew. She's a Samaritan. And normally Jews don't speak to Samaritans unless they absolutely have to. Two problems. But Jesus is no slave to the prejudices of others. He is Lord. By asking the woman for a drink, he has already overcome these two obstacles, this cultural and this historic obstacle. And so now Jesus converses with her, and he he gently leads her along to confront her sinfulness and to confront her need for a saviour. And finally, he extends to her the gospel, speaking of God's unconditional forgiveness and love to those who acknowledge God as Lord. He gives the gospel. He keeps her in a comfort zone. He allows time for her to absorb all that he says. 
Jesus says to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you'd have asked him and he would have given you living water. And so using this, you know, it's, it's sometimes pretty hard to speak to Jesus, isn't it? He, he, he speaks un, in unusual ways. You've got to listen very carefully. And here he's using a metaphor of, of living water to, to teach about the deepest spiritual truths. That he has the power of eternal life. So he speaks about this living water. She thinks he's speaking about well water. Though some kind of a special well water with sort of magical properties. She wants to know, where can she get this water? And Jesus, I suppose, pointing to the well says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, he's speaking about the satisfaction that comes to us from being right with God, God's generous gift of life. But the woman can't think beyond the well and the drudgery of coming out every day to have to fetch water from there. And she says, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty. And, and keep coming back to draw water. So can you see what Jesus is doing? He's, he's giving her time. He never ridicules her for her lack of understanding. Don't you get the metaphor? She, she, he's never demanding, you know, repent or else. He's very gentle, very patient. And then he says, go call your husband and come back. Or point three, another obstacle dismantled. The woman says, uh, I have no husband, which is sort of true, but not that she could have been a politician, couldn't she? I mean, it's sort of true, but not the whole picture. Jesus fills in some missing pieces in her statement. Yes, she sa- he says, you're right, you have no husband at the moment, but you have had five husbands. That's as many wives as Jerry Lee Lewis had, wasn't he? He had five wives, I believe. Well, you've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. So either he's not married or he's somebody else's husband. Now, Jesus is kind of lifting the lid on her life, and it's pretty colourful. I mean, there could be legitimate reasons why five husbands have come and gone, but perhaps not. And so there's probably some... Sinful activity behind that somewhere. But he doesn't reject her. He doesn't chasten her. He does not show his displeasure at her. Despite the fact that he knows all about her, he continues to unpack the gospel for her. He removes the potential obstacle of what we might call sanctimonious revulsion that keeps some people away from church and from the gospel today. We call that sanctimonious revulsion. Christian people showing disgust at at, uh, not-yet-Christian sordid lives. I remind you that not-yet-Christians act like not-yet-Christians. We've got to expect that. Let me give you an example of the the danger of sanctimonious revulsion. I was in a church, small church, a long way from here. When a man well known to the church people, and the leaders in particular, came in, a first time visitor, wonderful, 
the church needed to grow. One or two people actually welcomed him. But there were others there who could not hide their revulsion at his being there. They literally turned their back on him and walked away. And they later told me he was a bad man. He had bad pictures, like that herd at least, on the, on the wall of his house. Now, no doubt feeling unwelcome, that man never returned. Oh, surprise, surprise. So compare that reaction to Jesus' reaction to the, the revelation about the woman's life. No revulsion, he just keeps, keeps working with her. So, a sinner walks into your church. Is that bad or is that good? I would reckon it's good. I reckon that's a good place for a sinner to be because they'll very likely hear the gospel and they may even fall down and acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. Yeah, I know that the Bible teaches that our church meetings are mainly for the building up and encouraging of Christians, but Paul makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians 14.23 that we are to anticipate, we are to expect not yet believers entering our services. We had uh, Dr. Barry Webb here for a weekend some years ago and I love some of his nomenclature. He never talked about believers and unbelievers or Christians and non-Christians. It was about believers and not yet believers and Christians and not yet Christians. That's a far better terminology because everybody's a potential Christian. And so uh, we, we need to anticipate not yet Christians coming into our services. It's a good place for them to be because they'll hear the gospel. They should be made welcome, made comfortable and given time so that they can hear the gospel and have opportunity to respond. But the message that that man received that day was that, well, church must be only for good people, not bad people like him or bad people like the Samaritan woman. Now, church is a place where you'll find only two kinds of people, sinners and recovering sinners. So we're all one or the other. You won't find Jesus raising obstacles to people coming into church. He removes them. See that the... The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. That's what God's interested in. It's not our job to show revulsion at sinners leading sinful lives as we might, might expect them to do. We are to welcome them and bring them to the gospel. It's a great time to examine our hearts, to seriously examine our hearts. Are there attitudes in us, cultural, historic? Are there attitudes in me that could be obstacles to sinners hearing about Jesus? We've got to repent of those. We must have the mind of Christ in us. Well, point four, an obstacle avoided. This woman's a clever soul because she now raises an obstacle to her hearing the gospel. And we see Jesus deflect her obstacle and stay on track with the gospel. Now, there's nothing like, is there a head-to-head argument to destroy the work of church growth? I was in a church again, a long time ago, another place, where one of the leaders and another chap disappoint, dis, disagreed on some point of doctrine. It wasn't a huge issue, but it was an issue. It could have been discussed and worked through, but the leader decided to address the issue by means of a heated, head-to-head argument. The chap left the church, took several friends with him, including some brand-new Christians, and that church never recovered. The problem wasn't that they differed in doctrine, but that they thought they could solve their differences by a heated argument. It rarely works. 
People enter our churches with all kinds of doctrinal convictions. Now, in a WPC church like this one, the elders, the deacons, the pastors, they're, they're guided in doctrine by the historic Westminster Confession of Faith. But we don't turn people away because they hold different views. We welcome people with different views. We gently present our views. We encourage people to study what Scripture says. And if we can't persuade them to our position, fine. At least we help people see how we reached our convictions. And we want to stay in fellowship with them, though at times we may simply agree to disagree while loving one another. Some of my closest friends in churches have been people, we disagree on certain points. We love each other very deeply and we stay in rich fellowship. Well, this lady is becoming uneasy that he knows so much about her. When a man, a complete stranger, tells you about how many husbands you've had and, 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 and knows who you're living with now, that's, there's something going on here. And she's getting a bit disturbed. She wants to get Jesus off her case and she tries to provoke an argument. Little girl. Uh, verses 19 and 20. Sir, she said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. Mount Gerizim, by the way, is right nearby where they are. Plenty of the mountain. But you Jews claim that the place that we must worship is in Jerusalem. She wants Jesus to get angry. That's a, that's a classic, uh, that's a classic Barney, that one. He wants, she wants Jesus to give her some reason not to have to talk to him anymore because he's hot on her tail. So she revisits the temple controversy, which is the root cause of bitterness between Jew and Samaritan. In the 6th century BC, when the Jews came back from the Babylonian exile and they were given money by Cyrus the Persian to rebuild their temple, and the Samaritans, who were then living down in, in Judea, showed up and said, we want to help. And the Jews said, push off, not you lot, get. And so the Samaritans said, well, we'll build our own temple. And they built one on Mount Gerizim nearby. The Jews said, you can't do that. We're only allowed to have one temple. So they destroyed the Samaritan temple. And the Samaritans said, you can't do that and went down and burned some pig bones on the temple in Jerusalem, which is why they became very bad friends. So she, she raises this argument uh, to create, a, I think, a heated discussion at the very least and get Jesus off her tail, give her reason to walk away from him. But Jesus does not act like she expects. She wants a heated argument. Jesus says, well, let me state a few facts about history about worship but he deflects the argument by speaking about a very big change that is to come that is now here verses 21 through 24 woman he says believe me a time is coming when you will worship the father neither on this mountain Gerizim nor up in Jerusalem you Samaritans worship what you do not know we worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. From the crucifixion onwards, true worship of God has nothing to do with temple. 
Turn it into a block of condos, if you like, but nothing to do with the temple or Mount Gerizim or, or anywhere else, any other place. See, following the crucifixion, the resurrection, true worship will be from the heart and according to truth. And the truth is that Jesus Christ is Lord and true worshipers worship God by worshiping him. And you worship him anywhere, everywhere, all the time, by loving God and loving your neighbours yourself. Well, that's all a bit much for the Samaritan woman. She's suffering what we would call information overload. And so she says rather dismissively, well, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything. It's like someone saying to the preacher, I'll wait till the guest speaker comes. He'll clear things up for me, which is a bit offensive, isn't it, really? <laughs> but once again, you see, Jesus does not take offense. He's not here to defend his feelings. He's here to preach the truth about God and eternal life, and he's here to die for our sins. Now, let me ask you, if you're a not-yet-Christian, are you raising obstacles to your willingness to hear Jesus and let him enter your heart? It's very easy to, you know, people will say things to me, oh, maybe I'm not one of the elect, you know. Don't even think about that. Just believe in Christ. I mean, all kinds of th- obstacles are raised to try and get Jesus off their tail. You've just got to um, listen and receive Christ as Lord. There is no greater teacher than Jesus. In fact, he's the very one that the woman says she can't wait to meet Messiah, the one who knows all things. Because Jesus then says, I, the one speaking to you, I, I am. Not only does he claim to be God's Messiah, God's anointed one, he also claims to be God. See, God identified himself to Moses in the burning bush as I, I am, giving us the name Yahweh. And Jesus uses the exact same term to identify himself. I, I am. So, you need to listen to him. We all need to listen to him. Well, the woman stands there, I think, a bit stunned. What began as a simple water-gathering expedition turns into a personal encounter with the creator of the universe in the form of the sun. Who cares about her? She's a sinner, like us all. She needs a saviour, like us all, and he is the saviour. Now, that's the conduit between God and people. God is the saviour. We need to be saved. And we must do all that we can to demolish and negotiate obstacles so that people who come to us or come into our church meetings can get directly to the Saviour, the one who loves us, the one who truly saves. Amen. Thank you, Father, again for this account. And we, Lord, we respond to your word always in repentance and belief. We repent, Father, of the times that we have unwittingly, Father, perhaps overzealously produced obstacles, Father, between people and the gospel. Forgive us, Lord. We believe, Father, that what your word says is true and may you, by your grace, enable us, Father, to be people who love to introduce not yet believers to the Lord Jesus, the one who saves. Amen.
Thank you both for that message. And now we'll um, give thanks to God and we'll pray for the needs, our personal needs.